Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. Welcome back to the show. Delighted to be with you again today. We are going to take a look at what it is to be 10,000 miles to the American dream. Reed Goosens moved to the United States in 2012 to pursue his career in structural engineering. However, his engineering career was cut short when he discovered a passion for real estate investing. With limited funds and no credit, Reed went from purchasing a small duplex to growing his own real estate investment firm. Reed is the host of the up-and-coming podcast, Investing in USA, an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. So, Reed, take us into the show and share a pivotal moment in your life that helped you to be who you are today. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me again back on the show. Pivotal moment in life. Look, I think there's a lot of pivotal moments in my life. The one that I think that really stands out is when I finished university and I I went abroad and I lived in a foreign country. I'm still living in a foreign country today, but I've always been curious in in terms of travel. I think traveling is extremely important for young people to get out and experience other cultures, other countries, the way people do economies around the world, how how trade is done. And I think it opens up the mind, just other opportunities, really takes the blinkers off. So that in terms of how I built what I built today was really a pivotal moment to get out of my comfort zone and start questioning and seeing how other people do things because I think it's really, really important. Well, Reed, take us into real estate here. You started off with a small duplex and from that small duplex, you moved from that to uh, to larger complexes. Take us down that journey. Yeah. So when I first moved to the United States, I was so, uh, so enamored with um, with real estate investing. I already had sort of gotten the bug uh, in Australia. But when I moved here, I realized that you know the US is such an incredible tapestry of networking events and, and access to information that was, you know, you know, that I would have had to pay thousands and thousands of dollars to a guru back in Australia to get answers to. So I remember going to my first RIA event, the, the Real Estate Investment Associations, and that was New York City. And it was, you know, fast talking Americans that I had no idea what they're talking about in terms of cap rates and EIN numbers and credit scores. But it was all there, 30 bucks at the door, you know, you can learn a lot. And so that was the real start of my journey. You know, within six months of buying my first, uh, with being fresh off the boat, so to speak, I had bought my first property all cash. Uh, it was in Syracuse, New York. And then over, you know, subsequently over over time, I went on to buy a few other little properties. Uh, and then through a really pivotal conversation with a good friend of mine in New York City, I then sort of said to myself, you know, I need to start doing bigger and bigger properties. You know, I wanted to always buy as many you know units as I can with the money that I had. But I was sort of hitting a ceiling in terms of my belief in, to, in how I could scale something. So I, I remember having this conversation with, with a good friend of mine, and he was talking about mentorship and other people's money, you know, and, and, and getting seller carryback financing on these, you know, 70, 80, 100 unit deals. And I was only just like, wow, that's incredible. You can go off and do that. He's a good friend of mine. He's now to set the bar at a certain level. So Obviously, I'm one of those guys that that, that rises to the occasion, and through um, you know going out and finding a mentor, um, that was sort of the pivotal moment that I then started to shift 
my focus away from you know smaller stuff and started to do larger and larger projects. So that was quite a, a pivotal moment as well in my career of growing uh, to what I built today. Today, we have about $650 million of assets under management across five different MSAs here in the United States. It's about 3,500 units. Um, I just got back from a trip to Greenville, South Carolina, where we're buying 280 units there. Uh, was there with the team just doing due diligence. So come a long way in the last 10 years. And I don't sit on the show to boast. I sit on the show to say that you know, if an Aussie from 10,000 miles away can, can move to the US and, and, and start with nothing, um, I come from a very modest background. I, you know, so can the average American. Tell us why it is that you you came to the US to invest and what is different about investing in the US as in terms of investing in Australia. Both Australia and the United States are previous English colonies. We have legal systems that are very, very similar to one another, mm-hmm. speak the same language. Our cultures are cultures overlap in so many, many, many different ways. Why is it that it, you find it advantageous to invest here rather than in, in Australia? Very good question. When I moved here, I didn't know that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I moved here really to just, just live in New York City. I wanted to be an expat. I came here as a structural engineer, as my bio has mentioned. Also came here to chase a girl, and that girl is now my wife. So really just, just wanted to live in New York City, tick that box. And then when I started getting here, I started you know, peeling away the onions, right? The onion layers of, of the different opportunities that were available to me. And now looking back, the major differences between Australia and the United States is, is really boils down to, to, to one major thing, and that's that's population. The landmass of Australia is roughly the same size as that of mainland America, give or take, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can only inhabit you know, 20% of our country. The rest is just a desert. Mm-hmm. And we only have 20, 25, 26 million people. We have less than one-tenth of the population that you have here in the US, right? So when you have so much more, so many more people, it drives these secondary and tertiary markets, these more affordable markets. It also drives competition in terms of lending practices, right? We don't have the Freddie Macs of the world and the Fannie Mae's, right? We don't have government bond real estate loans that we can go out, non-recourse, very, very low. The other thing we don't have in Australia is our lending practices. And I'm going to use the word sophistication, but it's not the right word, but just let's just use it anyway. In Australia, it's all a condominium market, right? They don't they don't ever say, I, I can't go to a bank and say, hey, I want to build this hundred unit multifamily deal. And they're like, great, we're gonna, we're gonna value it on the future value of the NOI and, and, and the land. They said, no, no, we're gonna, we need you to pre-sell X amount of units off the plan. And that's just you know through financial engineering. But also the fact is our our dirt's more expensive, our labor's more expensive, the cost to build is more expensive. So overall, the build for rent model in Australia just doesn't really work. It's always good to build for, for, to sell. So I couldn't go back to Australia and buy a 200-unit garden-style apartment. They just don't exist. And they don't actually exist anywhere else in the Western world. So it's really here in central, uh, no, sorry, but, but the Midwest in the Sun Belt, where you have that plethora of you know garden-style two, three stories on four or five acres um, you don't see it in Europe. You don't see much of it in Canada. You don't see them, you know, in, in part in, in Australia, parts of Asia. So, you know, it's a very, very unique thing to the United States. And it all really boils down to around population. So what is the proportion of uh, property owners to renters in Australia? I think it's about 65% property owners in the United States, somewhere around in there. Yeah. That's right. I, I don't know that specific stat. However, there are more Generally speaking, there's first-time homeowner grants in Australia where they're encouraging people to buy homes, right? My first home isn't a single-story four-bedroom. It's a 
you know, condominium in, in, mm. in a high rise, you know, in Brisbane or Sydney. That's 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 you leave university and you want to go buy your first home. It's a probably two bedroom, two bath condominium, um, you know, somewhere near the CBD or of a local city. So yeah. Yeah, interesting. You've not only become a real estate investor, but of course, I mean, we <laughs> we like to think that real estate is a passive investment. Most of us in the business know it isn't. <laughs> that it is, in fact, an active business. So, uh, how did you, as a an Australian, come to the United States and start a successful business? Well, through a couple of other pivotal. You asked about the pivotal moments in my life. There's been a lot of them. One of them was in and around being a structural engineer. Right, I have a skill set. I had a, you know had a skill set coming to the US, and I had a job in New York City. I moved to LA, uh, where my wife is from. And I got really sick and tired of engineering. I just didn't want to do it. But I knew how to build stuff, right? I came from an institutional world where I knew to manage big projects, you know, you know, from property management all the way through to how to understand how to physically build and form concrete and rebar and steel and all that sort of stuff. And I said to myself, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. I want to go and work on the development side. But I had the where, you know, the, the sort of the self-awareness to say, well, I'm already rubbing shoulders with developers here. I'm sure I've got a skill set that I could provide to them, right? And at the time, I, I didn't have my green card. I couldn't, if I had to stay in this country, I needed a visa. So what I did in 2014 was I approached a couple of developers that the engineering firm that I was working for, we were designing their multifamily projects. And I said to them, you look, hey, I'm sick of engineering. I've, you know, I've got the, I've got the skill set. I, I feel like it could be, could be valuable for you. So I went out and found a job and they offered me a job. This, this developer offered me a job and that was a way to keep me in the game, in the real estate space, but still keep a roof over my head, still keep the bills paid. And then I could allow myself to be in real estate 24-7, 365 days a year. And I learned how the big boys did it, right? I also then was going out on the side and doing my syndications in, you know, in, in Texas and other states. And I was building sort of momentum on both ends. I was, you know, the, the experience in the day job, and then also, you know, doing it on the side. And that was really, really key. And I talked to a lot of people who want to get involved in the business of, of real estate. And I say, well, what's the skill set you have today? We all st- we don't, we don't, we're not just all born with 15 years worth of real estate experience. We've got to start somewhere. But we always have, everyone has a uh, you know, specific set of skills, you know, regardless of your background, that you can bring and could be valuable to someone in the business. Now, I happen to go to a developer you could go to a fix and flipper. You could go to a real, become a realtor. There's so many different paths into the business that you can be valuable to that to to someone who is in in the business, and you can learn from it at the same time. So, getting into the business of real estate came through changing my mindset about the skill set I had to pivot, knowing that I wanted to be my own, you know, own my own business at one stage. But it was a pivotal you know, stepping stone to keep me going, you know, moving that ball down the fairway towards the, the goals and the dreams that I wanted to achieve. Reed, you just mentioned that when you had, had transitioned from engineer to uh, working for the development companies, you were on the side, you were uh, at that time still investing. You were living in Los Angeles, I believe, mm-hmm. and, and you correct. were investing in Texas. Take us into that. And why were you investing in Texas while you were living in LA? Number one thing is cap rates, right? Back in the day, it was just more the barriers to entry. Again, like when I was living in New York City, going up to Syracuse, New York, it was just the barriers to entry in certain markets for multifamily were cheaper than what they are here in LA, right? I couldn't go out and buy. I remember buying my first property for $65,000 a door. I bought a 192-unit building right in San Antonio. You couldn't find a building in LA 
that's $65,000 a door. So it just, the numbers made more sense, right? And through looking at a lot of deals in these secondary markets, I found that cash flow was obviously more prevalent as well. So think of Los Angeles like Sydney, like Hong Kong, like it's a high appreciation market, low cash flow market. So I was looking for those more cash flowing markets, right? And that's where I came across the San Antonio's of the world, the Dallas's, the Fort Worth. This is in you know 2014, 2015. And that's how I, you know, underwriting a lot of deals, you know, analyzing a lot of deals, and then eventually be able to get, you know, snag my first one. During this process, you were were learning a lot from uh, the developers you were working with, but at the same time, you obviously had some some syndication skills. What was it about working for the developers that was actually different than working your own business in terms of syndications? Yeah, ground development. Think of I think of the real estate portfolio like a uh, the food triangle, right? You know, everyone knows what the food triangle is. On the bottom level is the good, healthy foods, right? That's the cash flowing deals that you need to start a, a real estate business. So you need to go out and find as many cash flowing deals, and it can be as from from as small as a duplex all the way through to a three hundred unit portfolio, all the way through to a self storage or mobile home park, whatever cash flows. You need to put that in that in that layer, right? Mm-hmm. As you build. So does risk, right? So at the top of the triangle is ground up development. It is the got the highest risk for the highest reward. Now, not every single real estate developer starts off being a real estate developer. They more than likely start off doing smaller stuff, cash flowing, fix and flipping, that stuff on the bottom layer that really helps the foundation of building a business. And then, yeah, the guys that I was working for, we were building hundreds of multifamily units in you know, one of the hardest cities in the in the country to get things approved, right? It takes a lot of risk. It takes a lot of capital. It is just a different high octane environment. And how to manage those things doesn't come from just jumping to the top of the food triangle. It comes from building up over time. And so I've always, you know, encouraged people as you're building this business, it's always about the forming the cash flow, you know, layer, the foundation to then go off and do, if you want to do some sexy stuff and build ground up, and I'll, I'll go back into ground up development at some point in my future. I'm only 35, 36. But I started with the fundamentals of producing cash flowing assets or buying cash flowing assets to create that layer, that, 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 that fundamental layer for the business. Reed, you've got a lot of knowledge and experience to share. So how can our viewers and listeners take advantage of that and get in touch with you? Easiest way is to head over to reedgoosens.com. That's R-E-E-D-G-O-O-S-S-E-N-S.com. You have my podcast there. You've got two books, audio books. You can see my experience. And if you're interested in you know meeting up or if you're ever coming through Los Angeles, you want to meet up for a coffee, just hit me up at info at, at reedgoosens.com. And all that information is in our show notes. Reed, how do you go about developing your personal brand. I mean, that's a very important part of actually developing any kind of business. How do you go about doing that? Another pivotal moment in the in the story, right? You know, moving from uh, just before I moved to LA through that mentor that I mentioned earlier in, in, in the piece, he encouraged me to that I had a story, right? And through this is early on, this is in 2014, I started the, the podcast, which you can see in the background here is now cut into a book. It's called Investing in the US, the ultimate uh, guide to US real estate. That's the book. But the podcast also has the same name called Investing in the US. And it started with me telling my story about me moving here. And not only other international people would be interested in it, but other 
you know, local real estate people getting started. Like I had to learn what an EIN number was. I had to learn what an LLC was and how to protect my assets. I had to learn how to underwrite deals. I had to learn what's the best financing to go out and get on a property. I had to learn how to go and talk and negotiate with contractors and get pro- property management. All that, whether you're Australian or not, <laughs> everyone needs to know those fundamentals. So I started talking to other experts in the, in the, in the industry back in 2014, recording it, and then releasing it on a podcast. Today, um, I have, uh, I think, over 400 episodes. I've probably been interviewed on at least 500 different shows myself. And it is all through talking about a story because your story is really, really important. And the beauty about this is everyone has a story, right? And everyone is everyone's story is unique to them. And I'm not trying to be Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss. I'm just trying to have a story, put it out there. If people resonate with it, fantastic. Let's do business. But if not, that doesn't matter because I'm never going to hear from them. <laughs> so <laughs> having having a personal brand is about building it, it's the best way to build a recession proof business because in the act in, in the in the business of real estate in the business of raising capital people invest in me first and foremost it's the trust that i have to build with them and have to garnish with them garner with them i should say that they will then ultimately invest into my deals and i can't build that trust without being one vulnerable and two telling a story yeah wonderful yeah i like that concept uh, that you just mentioned, read of being vulnerable. We often think of vulnerability as a weakness, but mm-hmm. it is actually a massive power and uh, strength. A hard concept to learn sometimes, though. It is. It is. Reed, you not only do syndication, but you understand the concept of re-entitling on land. Take us into that. Re-entitlement. Again, think about the word highest and best use. So I own a piece of property here in Los Angeles. A simple re-entitlement or a highest and best use is that I own, I own a single family house, but I can add a 80 or granny flat, so to speak, on the back of a property, right? Because my, my property is zoned R2. It, has, it can have a certain amount of square footage. Well, the highest and best use isn't just this, the house that I live in, the 1,400 square feet house. The highest and best use would be to go and add another four 500 square feet on the back, right? So but that can that's the sort of the 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 that's one end of the scale. The under the end of the scale is you can go and get density, you know, in terms of you, you know, where I work for these developers, the whole thing that they their business is around is finding these pieces of dirt, you know, using getting to the highest and best use, or even potentially re, rezoning them in order to allow more density. So another example is when I worked for this developer, he had an office tower and it had a lot of density on this piece of dirt, right? Then there was a piece of dirt behind it that did not have any density in terms of what you could build. It was just, it was, I can't remember what it was zoned, but it wasn't zoned correctly. He ended up buying that, combining the two lots, because again, the office tower had all this ex- excess density because it was an office tower and because of its zoning laws, that you could transfer it to this other piece of dirt. And now this other piece of dirt is more valuable, right? Because you can now go build 120 units on it. What did he do? He went and built 120 units on it. And then he split it back up again and he sold those 120 units and kept the office tower. So thinking of ways of using, seeing what the highest and best use is, is really important. So everything, again, from you know, the small granny flat analogy that I made to, to all the way through to being really complicated and having a tower and you know, sharing the density and air rights and all that sort of stuff. But that's what developers do, right? That's what what's what that's how the big guys make the big bucks because they're thinking outside the box of how to take a piece of dirt and get it to its highest and best use in the most efficient time possible through zoning requirements, through going through city council and through construction. 
Reed, it sounds like it's really important to be able to do these things. You really need to know your community. You need to know the zoning laws. You need to know your housing and regulation departments and probably even know the people within those departments. You do. And developing those relationships. So it building a, a top team to be really successful in this business is from what I understand from what you're telling us, we have to to think outside the box in terms of that. And our team is not just who it is that works directly with us. How do you go about developing that crack A level team? The cracking team, yeah. Like in the beginning, you know, when I when I re- rewind all the way back to that first property, right? When I first looked at a market, I'm like, well, how am I going to find deals, right? Well, guess who's first team team member? Your real estate broker, right? They're going to be the person who you need to go and hassle <laughs> until you get certain deal flow. And that could be from anything from a single family house all the way through to, you know, commercial grade, you know, industrial land. Like there's brokers for everything, right? So developing relationships in certain key markets that you've identified with those brokers is extremely important. Probably the number one thing in this business is to keep those broker relationships strong. And to this day, that's all I work on. So that's the first one. The second one, okay, well, when we get into that market, when we start looking at deals, who's going to manage that property for me, right? Property management. That's the second person on the team. And again, these team members may change over time, but you st- when you first start investing, you have to start you know, somewhere. So you're starting to look into the, the, the Google reviews, all the, 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 the business journals online. Who is the best property managers in your local market that you're trying to go and identify? Well, guess when you've got a property under, under, under contract and you want to need to do it up, well, guess who else you need? A general contractor, third person on the team that you're going to need. And, and again, general contracting is a tough gig. It's hard to manage those people. It's hard to find a good one. So you'll constantly go through probably a lot of them, but they, they are very crucial to your team. The, the fourth person would be an attorney. Who's the local attorney that's going to help you draft and negotiate all your PSAs and your legal documentations if you're getting into syndications? That's extremely important. And then the final piece, is going to be your lender. Who's the lender on your team that's going to help you get the financing for your particular property? Who's going to help you qualify or tell you what you need to do to qualify in order to go down, go down, take down a certain type of uh, of deal? Without those five people, you don't, you can't start investing, right? It's not about you as the individual, as the investor, knowing everything. It's about going in, out and forming a team that can help you run at a quicker level and buy more deals and scale more quickly. Well, I'm interested here. You mentioned a local uh, attorney. Uh, it's been my experience that particularly in t- the tertiary markets and secondary markets, that it's impossible to actually find an attorney who understands syndication and mm-hmm. particularly real estate syndication. Where do you find those attorneys for those uh, those secondary and tertiary markets? The, the beauty about what I do today and the vendors that I work with, and again, if I look back over the last 10 years, those five team members that I just spoke about are completely different what they were 10 years ago to what they are today. My, my legal team is based here in Los Angeles. They do deals across the country. They know the, the nuances of big scale, multi-hundred million dollar deals. Um, and that, they, and I, you know, I pay for them. <laughs> They're expensive. But I pay the right people to tell me the right things in terms of how I structure them. Now, in terms of if we go, we just closed on a deal in Phoenix. We're going to close on a deal in Greenville, South Carolina. We've got another deal coming up in Texas. I let them figure out what who they need locally to to mm-hmm. to help us close the deal. But in general, the, the the takeaway from that story is that as you grow your business, you're going to need more 
better vendors on your team and, and legal is one of them to help you navigate just the legal systems of syndication, of the SEC, of producing a PPM, all those sort of things that you just, you know, I'm not the expert in that. That's why I go out and hire those people to provide me the advice on. Yeah. Well, Reid, what are your closing thoughts? My closing thoughts? Well, look, I think the big thing is where we are today in this market. You know, we are, it's been an extremely weird time. We've had interest rates shoot up since, you know, the end of last year, particularly in the multifamily space. You know, there was a very frothy for the last two or three years. I still think the fundamentals of, of multifamily real estate are there. I still think that, you know, I was just touring a deal in Greenville, South Carolina, where the in-place rents are only 900 bucks. Where I could push where the market is over $1,300, $1,400, so I can push the value of those rents up, right? Now, if I can still create value in deals, uh, sorry, in, in, the, yeah, in, in those deals, people are still needing you know, places to rent because guess what? It takes more money to go and buy a property these days because interest rates have gone up. So what's, you're going to have more renters. So providing affordable housing, in my mind, which is what the space I'm in, is really key to you know, having a really safe investment over the long term. Um, we talked about Australia versus the US. Well, guess what? There's housing problems in Australia as well. There's inflationary problems in Aussie right now. There's inflationary problems in Mexico. There's inflationary problems across the globe. So in terms of a macro level, you know, if you compare to 2008, 2008 was a US problem that percolated around the world. Today, we're all at the sort of same starting block. We're all you know, pushing on the same levers. And, you know, interest rates across the globe have gone up. Right, lending is harder to obtain. It's more expensive, so people are therefore needing to rent longer. Right, so providing that housing is extremely important, and that's the space that I I play in. Coupled that with understanding the value that I'm adding to a property, I'm not just buying it and sitting on it. I'm coming in, renovating units. I'm rebranding the asset. I'm giving it a new name. I'm doing up the amenities. I'm making it feel like a newer property, so people want to then full pay more to live there, right? Because it's a nice, it's got nicer amenities. It's just got nicer, you know, stainless steel appliances. It's got better property management who, who, who answer the phone. All those things matter and I'm adding value. So I'm forcing that appreciation, forcing the cash flow, and that's what I can control. And that's the beauty of buying multifamily assets, in my opinion. Enlightened investors, another enlightening session. Reed has tremendous background and wonderful information he shared with us today. Thanks for being with us, Enlightened Investors. And I look forward to being with you in our next episode. Thank you, Reed, for being with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.